Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. This interview is not intended for U.S. investors. Episode 24 of Economic Rockstar features Greg Davies of Barclays. In this episode, we talk about behavioral economics, behavioral finance, how to acquire emotional comfort for your long-term financial objectives, as well as Greg's trading floor experiment using opera known as Open Outcry. Competition time. Win a copy of Soccernomics by Simon Cooper and Stefan Sabansky, as featured in Episode 8 with Robbie Butler. This is football's answer to Freakonomics. This book is written with an economist's brain and a football writer's skill. So to be in with a chance to win Soccernomics, visit economicrockstar.com forward slash giveaway. Never miss an episode of Economic Rockstar. If you're listening to iTunes, why not subscribe? Biases are only often biases if you view them through the lens of what economic theory very narrowly and mathematically deems to be rational. We don't believe that behavioral finance is in opposition to classical finance. We think that behavioral finance is a generalization of classical finance. Finance theory is all about telling you what the optimal point is and offering you no guidance as to how to get there in a comfortable way. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I'm so honoured to have Greg Davies join us today. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Thanks. Good to be here. Greg Davies is Managing Director and Head of Behavioural Finance at Barclays. He joined the firm in December 2006 to develop and implement commercial applications, drawing on behavioural portfolio theory, the psychology of judgment and decision-making, and decision sciences. Today, Greg leads a global team of behavioural and quantitative finance specialists, and is responsible for the design and global implementation of Barclays Investment Philosophy. Greg is an Associate Fellow at Oxford University Said Business School, and his first co-authored book, Behavioural Investment Management, An Effective Alternative to Modern Portfolio Theory, was published in January 2012. He is co-curator and co-creator of Open Outcry, a reality opera based on the stock market trading floor. Greg has authored papers on multiple academic disciplines, presents at academic and industry conferences, and is a frequent media commentator on behavioural finance. He is an editorial board member of the Journal of Behavioural and Experimental Finance. Greg studied at the University of Cape Town and obtained a degree in economics, philosophy and finance. He followed this with an MPhil in economics and a PhD in decision theory and behavioural finance from the University of Cambridge. Greg, your name is not to be mistaken with the UK comedian Greg Davies. <laughs> no. <laughs> Are you aware no, of that, are you? I'm, I'm very aware of that, which is why I, I often use my middle initial when I'm publishing, just so that it's a little bit less difficult to confuse me with said comedian when people are looking for um, behavioral finance geekery. And what about Craig David? Uh, yeah, that one hasn't happened for a year, a few years, but when he was very popular a while back, I often got Craig people David. at the other end of the phone line getting confused. <laughs> Craig, your area is in behavioral finance. Could you tell me how you evolved from, because this is a relatively new discipline, how you evolved from the study of economics into behavioral finance or economics? Was this something that you were always interested in or something you came across in your studies? No, I came across it. My interests always combined economic theory and finance theory with philosophy. So I was always extremely interested in the rational underpinnings or the, the philosophy of rationality that underpins economic theory. 
So when I was looking for a topic to do my PhD in, my original intention actually was to do my PhD in pure philosophy and to study the philosophy of rationality. And whilst I was reading around that topic, trying to pull together a PhD proposal, I stumbled across this field that was until that point completely unknown to me of behavioral finance, which really seemed to be a wonderful confluence of philosophy, economics, mathematics, and to me, the at the time, completely unknown field, really, of, of psychology. But more importantly, it seemed to also cross-bridge the gap between the pure theory of philosophy uh, and a lot more practical outcomes. So I suddenly, on a whim, swung my PhD entirely away from the philosophy department and back into economics to study behavioral finance, which at the time, really was considered to be the lunatic fringe of the economics faculty. Daniel Kahneman in the 1970s found it very difficult to push this and make this something that's going to be very pivotal in the study of finance and economics. Only, I suppose, recently where we've had the financial crash of 2007, that this has really boomed in terms of the demands and the need for a study in behavioral and psychology of economics and finance and of people that are in these particular fields. And Barclays reached out to you to bring this on board. I, I was doing a combination of academic work and consulting work. I had helped to build a consultancy coming out of the psychology department of Warwick University, Decision Technology, which is, is still going strong today. And I've always been interested in this blend between the deep academic theory and how we can turn that into, into practical outcomes. Uh, that was pre-crisis, though. So we were, we were working on commercializing some of these behavioral notions or aspects of decision science before the crisis. I think the seminal or the pivotal point in behavioral economics and behavioral finance starting to become more mainstream and more noted was really Daniel Kahneman winning the Nobel Prize economics in 2002. But you're absolutely right to say that it really isn't until the financial crisis that that sort of mainstream element started to be increasingly popular and people started to look at it as a foundation for practical ways of doing things rather than it being very much the a niche icing on the cake as it was before. And what is behavioral finance for those people who are unaware that's a good question. Um, so I would define behavioral finance as the combination of finance theory and behavioral psychology. It's about trying to understand how people actually do go about making financial decisions and as a result, how we might help them to make better financial decisions. Uh, and we need to put that in contradistinction to standard or classical economic theory which really makes a whole bunch of assumptions about how people should make financial decisions and works from there. So behavioral finance is about how people actually do it. And I, I think in a way, looking back, it's, it's kind of surprising that economics became so divorced from psychology for so long, because when you think about it, it is immediately clear that every financial decision is a decision. And as a decision, it's made by a human being and human beings, uh, you know, we can't strip away our personality, our psychology, our emotional states from the decisions we make. So I think with hindsight, it seems perfectly obvious that almost all economics in a certain sense is behavioral. But academically, these strands became very narrow and pure for a long time. Uh, and as you say, in the 1970s and 80s, the, the work of, of Kahneman and Tversky and, and many others 
they were swimming upstream in order to try and bring a little bit of common sense back into economic theory. And there are numerous biases in behavioral finance and economics that make us irrational people. You mentioned earlier on about the philosophy of rationality. Whatever models economic theory has developed for us, a lot of them are based on the assumption that we are rational people. And this is something Tversky and Kahneman would have studied and analyzed that we actually are irrational, maybe due to some cognitive biases that we actually have in our decision making. Is there any particular biases that you might look out for or are your favorite biases that you actually study and seem to be more prominent amongst people in the investment field? So I'm, I'm going to be a little controversial here because I actually think that this tendency to view the world through biases is, is one of the more harmful ways of approaching behavioral finance um, and in particular this focus on rational versus irrational. So biases are only often biases if you view them through the lens of what economic theory very narrowly and mathematically deems to be rational. And there's a whole lot of behavior that traditional economists would call irrational that really isn't irrational at all. It's, it's perfectly reasonable, for example, for me to have a need to feel uh, short-term immediate emotional comfort. There's nothing irrational about that need. And yet sometimes that need leads me to decisions that are biased in the sense that the decisions are no longer optimal for my narrow financial objectives. So I'm actually very wary of using the label rational and irrational. A, a lot of deviations from narrow economic thinking are not irrational at all. They're, they're, they're perfectly reasonable. They just mean that people are bringing other objectives to bear on the decision, which is not to say that there aren't certain things that are irrational, but the, the, labels, the labels are used to convey much more meaning than I think is, is reasonable. The other problem is this tendency to look at the world through lists of biases. I saw a website a couple of months ago that listed 169 different psychological biases of decision-making which is, is interesting. And, and it, you know, it's interesting that so much research has been done to be able to unearth and categorize such a rich list of biases, quote unquote. But it's a completely useless way of looking at the world because many of these biases overlap with each other. Some of them contradict each other. And when you're faced with a list of 169 ways in which you are irredeemably irrational, it is very difficult to know what on earth you do with that information. So actually, uh, the bias approach has been very useful as a mechanism for popularizing behavioral finance because it gives people handy lists and people like lists. But we have to some degree entered the world of the bias bias where, um, you know, the, the natural tendency when observing any behavior is to instantly look for the psychological bias that explains it. And humans are more complex than that. In any given decision environment, there are huge numbers of aspects of the environment, of the context, of the individual's personality that together constitute what feels to them intuitively in their gut the right decision at that time. And that decision may be demonstrably stupid in many ways when you think about what that person is trying to achieve. But it's difficult to argue that choosing the decision that makes me feel most comfortable at the time is irrational in a much broader sense of the word. So I know I've somewhat sidestepped your question here, but I do think that to some extent the behavioral finance field often starts to tie itself in knots by using these very outmoded ways of thinking about the dividing line between rational and irrational and thinking about long lists of biases. I do understand where you're coming from, and I do agree 
Because as well as that, some of these, as you mentioned, biases, they are somewhat interdependent on one another as well. So you can't necessarily separate them out, even though you may be aware of some of the biases that might exist in people. In philosophy and psychology, a lot of academics talk about the subconscious. This is beginning to be fed into the study of economics and finance as well. Is this something that you would be interested in, in terms of studying it and applying it in your work at Barclays? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to some extent, we do apply that because there are many dichotomies you could talk about in looking at human decision making and human behavior. One of them is one that Daniel Kahneman has recently popularized greatly in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is this dichotomy between what he calls, in fact, it wasn't him that called it that in the first place, but what he terms system one and system two. So there is my emotional, intuitive self, and there is my deliberative logical self and when i think about a problem both of these brains if you like are being brought to bear to a greater or lesser degree on any given problem so i have my innate response to a problem the gut feel the thing that just pops into my head instantly and then there is the ability for me to override that intuition and gut feel by thinking sequentially and logically through the problem and sitting down with an excel spreadsheet or whatever it may be and you know, this is an interesting way of looking at it because it automatically enables us to bring in that subconscious element that is operating through system one and say, how is that influencing the decision that, that we make? Now, in the work we do at Barclays, we use a slightly different dichotomy. I, I instead of, I, mean, I, I refer often to system one and system two, but for me, a better distinction for financial decision making is the distinction between my normative self, the set of decisions that are optimal for my long-term financial objectives, if I was to define those very precisely. And if you like, this is almost the, the homo economicus self. This is the self I would like to be if I was able to shut down all of my emotional and all-too-human responses to the immediate context and environment. And then the other self is, is the me now. It combines some of system one and system two, but it's, it's whatever gets me to the decision I actually make. So economists might talk about this in terms of revealed preference. So how do we take the self that's actually making the decisions in the present versus the decisions that are actually right for my long-term financial needs and find a way of trading these two things off? And packed into my immediate self is all of the subconscious stuff, but also a whole lot of conscious decision-making. And really, we, we like to think about this as simplifying these lists of 169 biases into a much simpler framework. The question we should be asking is, whenever people make a decision, they serve these two selves. There's the, the self that I want to be optimizing for, my financial objectives, the objectives that I think I'm solving for when I make this decision. And then there's my immediate self, which is much more governed by the question of, am I emotionally comfortable with this decision now? And so we can start to see a lot of this as a trade-off between financial efficiency and emotional comfort. And of course, classical finance says, if we're going to look at these things, we just we turn off our need for emotional comfort. It's, it's stupid, it's irrational, turn it off, we don't need it. The position of behavioral finance is much more subtle. It says, as humans, of course we need emotional comfort. Of course we need to be comfortable with the decisions we make, with the portfolio we hold. And there is nothing irrational about that. The right question to ask is how do I acquire the emotional comfort I need as cheaply as possible for my long-term objectives? 
Because if my decisions in the present are constantly deviating from the optimal decision for what I think I'm trying to achieve, then my need for emotional comfort is costly. And I can assuage that need either in an unplanned, knee-jerk and expensive way, as most of us do over the investment journey, or I can find ways of buying for myself emotional comfort or emotional insurance in a planned, thoughtful and efficient way. And so we can start to think of the whole aspect of subconscious conscious, of immediate context, of, of final objectives in a simple framework, which is how do I buy off my emotional self in a cheap and efficient way so that I actually get both a comfortable journey and good financial returns in the long term? When people are trading and they experience the highs and lows of their portfolio going up and down and so on, how do you apply that emotional insurance or what do you mean by emotional insurance? Is this something where you have to try and switch off and not be involved in the markets on a day-to-day basis if you're there for the long term? Or is it to allow somebody else to trade on your behalf? So the right way to do it depends very much on the individual and the environment. If I'm talking to wealthy investors who are not finance professionals, not making their own decisions, they're coming to us for advice, for example, often the best thing you can say to them is leave it alone. Get your money into a diversified portfolio and make sure that you are insured against things that can happen in your life and then just step away, leave it alone. And what you're doing there is you're purchasing your emotional comfort by stepping away from the decision-making altogether. If you're a professional investor, you don't have that luxury. So now you need to find other ways of controlling your emotional self in the moment. And sometimes that is similar. You might want to be looking at information less frequently. You might want to be tuning out certain aspects of the information. You might want to impose uh, an information blackout on yourself at times when you are particularly stressed. But for people who who are involved professionally in the markets, you can't afford just to step away completely. You need to then find a way of not switching off your emotions, but utilizing them effectively. You need to find a way of of managing your emotions. And emotions are actually a very good source of information for us if we use them in a thoughtful way, in a mindful way. If we're able to, in a sense, rather more dispassionately evaluate our own emotional state rather than just being caught up in it. And there's a whole raft of tools and techniques that we can use to purchase emotional insurance. And sometimes it's, it's controlling the information. Sometimes it's deliberately making decisions that are not theoretically optimal, but are more comfortable. So an example here might be home bias. Now, we know that people around the world excessively display home bias and familiarity bias in their portfolios. And from a narrow financial perspective, this is inefficient. But often it's not that inefficient, and it's a great deal less inefficient than being too uncomfortable to invest at all. So we can say that a little bit of home bias is not the perfect solution, but it's much better than you being too nervous to invest and sitting on the sidelines for the next 10 years because you aren't comfortable with the perfect portfolio. So we need to stop letting the best be the enemy of the good. Finance theory is all about telling you what the optimal point is and offering you no guidance as to how to get there in a comfortable way. Whereas the rational way of doing this actually is to say, if the optimal point is a discomforting point that's going to lead me to make mistakes over the investment journey, then in fact, it's not optimal at all. The optimal thing for me as a human is to pick the best portfolio that makes me sufficiently comfortable to stick with it, but that gets me the best realizable outcomes at the end. 
And so we need to start nesting the classical tools and techniques in a broader meta framework that allows us to explicitly take account of our human fallibility, our tendency, if we are emotionally discomforted along the journey, to make bad decisions. And economic theory offers very little in the way of advice to get there, and it certainly doesn't enable us to see the world as a trade-off between emotional comfort for my present self and the financial efficiency for my normative self. I had a previous guest, Paul Dolan, in episode 21, and you personally know Paul. Yes. He works in the area of behavioral economics too, and more so in the happiness. And he has done policy work for the government to try and identify how to make people happier or nudge them in certain directions to achieve a more optimal or efficient outcome for whatever they're actually trying to assess. You too yeah. would apply a certain type of strategy in your line of work for Barclays, whereby you have certain assessments to identify the personality of the person that would invest in your area. So how difficult was it to try to create a set of questions to find out the type of person that is coming to you and whether they're suitable for a certain portfolio or whether they're suitable for investment at all? It took a lot of work, but it wasn't difficult. I mean, there are very tried and trusted psychometric techniques that have been available to us for decades and a, you know, a very big literature on personality traits. So what we did was we applied these techniques in order to extract measures of financial personality, specifically things that would give me an indication of what exactly it is will make one person feel more or less comfortable over the investment journey. So we built a questionnaire, psychometric tool, using data from around 4,000 people around the world. We have deployed this in a business context. We now have personality data on over, I think, 50,000 high net worth individuals around the world. And that provides us with a very rich data set to be able to understand what it is that makes people deviate from the decisions that economists would think are optimal for their investing. And more importantly, it gives me a signal of how an, a specific individual investor is likely to do so over the future decisions in their portfolio. So what we can then do is, if you like, we can design for them the set of nudges that will enable them to make better decisions. If I know that certain aspects of the investment journey are likely to lead you to be stressed, anxious, and, and discomforted, then I can take steps to either change the portfolio that you have or the products that you hold within it or the way in which we communicate with you as a client or the level of information that you see or the frequency of information specifically in order to target those aspects of the investment journey that we know from the personality measures will make you uncomfortable. And what we're doing is finding ways of buying for you emotional comfort in a planned, cheap, and efficient way rather than just saying, here's your perfect portfolio, now it's your problem, and then watching our clients fail to achieve good investment returns in an expensive way. It's actually fantastic to be able to do something like that because this is something that I haven't heard of that is quite unique and dynamic in terms of identifying almost on a continuum. Persons. Yes. It, it, it's interesting because classical economic theory only allows us to use one aspect of personality, which is risk tolerance. Uh, in the classical portfolio theory models, it says, tell me what your long-term willingness to trade off risk and return is, and we can then pick a point on the efficient frontier that is optimal for you, and that is your solution, and that's as far as it goes. So we have six personality scales, 
One of them is a measure of risk tolerance. So we still ground our solutions in the classical solution. We don't believe that behavioral finance is in opposition to classical finance. We think that behavioral finance is a generalization of classical finance. So we still start with, we have your risk tolerance. Here is the perfect portfolio for your normative needs. But we have another five dimensions, each of which tells me about something about the way in which you have a personality that leads you to proclivities, ways in which you might be uncomfortable along that journey. And we built these scales in 2007. And what was interesting is we we built a set of psychometric scales that we knew differentiated between people. So we knew there were people who reliably score high and low on these scales. And we knew the scales were stable. So we knew these were scales that measured something real about people's personality traits, about how they would respond to the investment uh, journey. What we didn't have was any theoretical framework whatsoever for what to do with these scales, because classical theory gave us, you know, it doesn't allow you to use them. So a lot of our work over the last six or seven years has been a bunch of survey work, using this in the field with real clients. And what we've been trying to do is to say, if we know these aspects of your personality, here is what we do differently with you as a result. And it's not just about long-term risk tolerance. In fact, we have three different measures of risk attitude. One is your long-term risk tolerance. The other we call composure, which is essentially a measure of your tendency towards anxiety in the short term. And the third one is much more about your ambiguity aversion, your tendency to only feel comfortable with risk if these are risks that you feel familiar with. And so you have people who, while they may be highly risk tolerant, actually will avoid a lot of investments if those investments don't feel familiar to them. And with these three scales, we're able to build a much more tailored portfolio. But we've had to be constructing our own theoretical framework along the side as as, as we go along, which has been a very rewarding experience, actually. By the sounds of what you've just described there, it's like as if you've embraced the idea that, or the reality that the world we live in is a non-linear world as opposed to a linear world, whereby maybe the classical theory has identified the long term and the end point and ignores the roller coaster ride that you might experience in terms of the anxiety, etc. And the repositioning of portfolios throughout that journey. Um, Absolutely. So if you look at classical portfolio theory, it talks in terms of a trade-off between risk and return. And both risk and return are measures typically at a point in time. It says define your time horizon. Let's look at the distribution of outcomes at that time horizon, and we will find an efficient trade-off for you that gets you the best possible expected return relative to the risk you're prepared to take. That whole model ignores the path by which you get to those outcomes. And so we are constructing at the moment a model which says, actually, there are three things going on here. It's not just risk and return at the point of time. We also have to have a measure of the likely anxiety that will be induced by these portfolios along the journey. And then we can start to put these in a model where we're explicitly trading off path-dependent model of anxiety, a path-dependent measure of anxiety against the financial efficiency of the solution. And often you can find portfolios that aren't the optimal portfolio, aren't the, the theoretically optimal portfolio, but are pretty close to it. And yet these portfolios have characteristics that lead to a much calmer journey. So they are effectively cheap ways of buying emotional comfort. An important point here is that 
we don't have to think about behavioral finance as just being a collection of stories and anecdotes and biases. There are actually ways of systematically expanding economic theory and quantitative models that bring behavioral aspects inside the framework. And that is why for us it's important that my team is a behavioral quant team. Uh, we do everything from the portfolio optimization and portfolio um, you know, cash flow modeling, stochastic forecasting on the one side to psychometric testing and behavioral analytics of client data on the other side. And it's only when you bring these things together that you, you create a system that's powerful enough to be practically useful in the financial world. I have a lot of questions running through my mind at the moment. I'm dying to ask you all at once. You mentioned there's stochastic forecasting. I think it's a good introduction now to talk about your opera open outcry. Yes. Yeah, you're classically trained, are you? Uh, yes, yes. Although um, uh, it's been a long while since I was. Uh, uh, yes, it's 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 been a long while. <laughs> you're you're the second opera singer I've had on the show. Episode oh, right. yeah, episode nine, Naomi Brockwell, Australian living in the US. So uh, she's classically trained too. You mentioned stochastic forecasting. Open Outcries in collaboration with composer Alexis Kirk. That's right, yes. Could you explain the background to this and why you've actually developed it? Because I think it was based on a stochastic modeling of the financial system or the trading floor. It, it was of a trading floor. So Alexis approached me some years ago now and he had this idea. Uh, he, he used to work as a quantum finance, and he's a very interesting guy. He's got a PhD in computer science and another one in music composition. And he produces all these, these wonderful experimental works that combine music and science in various ways. Uh, he approached me with this idea, which was when you look at an open outcry trading floor, you've got people who are pursuing financial objectives, but there's a great deal of, of noise and emotion and passion going on there. And financial markets also exhibit properties that are similar to things that we find quite beautiful. So flocks of birds wheeling and the murmuration of, of, of huge flocks of birds, which each bird is pursuing its own objective, you know, not to get eaten or whatever it may be. But collectively, the emergent properties of the system are quite beautiful. And the same with schools of fishes. And you can think of markets as being a whole huge collection of individuals all expressing their own financial desires but together they create these wonderful patterns of herd behavior and you know, bubbles and booms and busts etc so alexis wanted to take some of these notions and turn them into a, an artwork a work of music uh, and what we did is we constructed an artificial trading floor um, of the same sort that a lot of behavioral finance academics create when they want to study how bubbles form in a simplified environment for example so we had a simple market which had three assets that people could buy and sell. And these assets all had a, a stochastic model underpinning them. Each asset had a certain return and, and standard deviation. There were three regimes in the model, so the, the markets could flip between a, a boom, a standard, and a bust regime. And the stochastic properties of the assets changed when this happened. And then there was also a feedback loop, depending on what the traders were doing. If everyone was trying to buy simultaneously, there was a feedback loop that nudged the market up and, and, and vice versa. So we created this market, and then we got 12 traders. But the catch was that the traders could only trade by singing. So each of these three assets had a phrase that needed to be sung to buy it and a phrase that needed to be sung to sell it. And Alexis used genetic algorithms to construct these phrases so that the buy and sell phrases interlocked harmonically. And if everyone was buying and everyone was trying to sing buy phrases at that time, 
then all the buy phrases interacted harmonically. But if people were trying to sell, the sell phrases were discordant and clashed. So what we did is created an artificial market, gave people these rules, pressed go effectively, rang a market bell, and then the musical experience was what happened was the, the sonification of the market itself. What happened as people in pursuit of their financial objectives, because the traders were rewarded at the end of the night according to the singers, were, were paid according to how well they traded on the evening. So they were creating music, but they weren't trying to sing aesthetically. They weren't trying to be musicians. They were trying to be traders. It was a, a wonderful thing to do, um, and I'm very grateful for Alexis for bringing it to me, and also for Bartley's for, for sponsoring our world premiere, which was a lot of fun. It's actually ingenious. I've seen the trailer for it on YouTube, and I'll put the link on the show notes page. But it's absolutely amazing, a great idea. Did you notice that there was any consistent, strong performer? Would you have had these same people on each time, or would they have been different traders? So we've only performed it once so far. I'm actually in discussions at the moment about a, a second performance, which could be interesting. There were patterns. We did a number of other things as well. We put all of our traders through our financial personality assessment, so we had measures of their personalities in advance. We collected every scrap of data from the evening. So every trade, exactly when it was done, which performers were, were trading it, what the price was they were trading at. So we got to actually, after the event, analyze all the data and correlate it with personality variables. And it was, it was, it was fascinating. I've done a, a couple of talks on that. What we found in the evening is who wins in that environment will be strongly dependent on how the market plays out stochastically. In a, this is a, you know, the, the whole thing only takes half an hour. So what will tend to happen is that if the markets on average stochastically are, are more inclined to decrease on that night than increase, and, and that we can't predict too much ahead of the game, although the conductor does have the opportunity to nudge the market into a boom or bust state at various times. Oh, but on that night, what we had was the, the stochastic model was feeling quite pessimistic and markets by and large went down on that night. And that meant that the singers who were less risk tolerant, who were less confident, who were inclined to sit on cash and not trade too much, were actually the ones that outperformed on the night. That could be quite different on a different night. But the important thing is it should be somewhat predictable by people's financial personality who's going to win on the night, depending on how it plays out. And did males trade more than females? Uh, yes, <laughs> they almost always do. Uh, and that was borne out in our data as well. And I think we had of 12 singers, I think five were female and seven were male. And the, on the top four scores, three of them were female on the night. That kind of ties in with a lot of studies, Odeon and so on, who have analysed this as well and came up with the same conclusions. Yeah. Did you notice anybody who were coattail traders, like the way Nick Leeson almost orchestrated the trading floors and brought down Bearings Bank and other traders on the floor would have followed the calls and signals by Nick himself? Did you find that or were they more independent? They were pretty independent. It was, it was a difficult task. You're asking traders to keep track of their own portfolio. And bear in mind, these are singers. So these aren't professional traders in any way. We had to teach them all the hand signals because they were spread around the edges of the room. So they, they had to be able to trade by singing, but also give the right hand signals. It was a difficult thing. And they had to pitch their particular phrases precisely in a very difficult environment. So it was very taxing. And a lot of them, I think, were very much focused on their own trading but we did, I mean, we had in the group a mathematician, we had a, um, 
a genuine rocket scientist. We had an actuary. And a lot of them were trying to figure out in advance how to game the system on the night. And we actually had to make quite a few small changes to the markets because the singers themselves had pointed out various ways in, in which the system might be gamed. <laughs> Fortunately, they did point this out to me. Even just building the market was a fascinating experience, and we learned a great deal from it. You mentioned it was a stochastic model. Uh, have you considered doing a deterministic model, or was there any predictive elements in terms of looking at past price behaviors, or was it totally random? It was, um, it was a totally random. Uh, it would be interesting, actually, if you were to be able to do it a number of times to potentially program in specific paths that you know are going to happen it would change the aesthetic of the work i mean if you know what's going to happen you could engineer a specific narrative arc you could engineer certain trading action and, and you'd, it would actually ironically give you more control over the final performance but you'd lose something by not having just that complete random chance involved in the in the performance music or any other noise shouldn't exist in actual markets because the intensity of sound could actually influence a person's trading behavior, like the way the composer would have done. I mean, it can, and there are interesting, there have been interesting attempts to sonify markets for traders because often traders are relying on visual cues. And for certain things, actually, the ear picks up different patterns to how our visual perception picks up patterns. So there have been odd attempts to say, let me take the data that's coming into your Bloomberg screens and turn it into a sound stream that may enable you to pick out patterns. I don't think any of these have gone anywhere, but both from a practical perspective and an aesthetic and artistic perspective, there are many wonderful potential uses for data in terms of data visualization and data sonification that are both, you know, both offer artistic outcomes, but also could be very practical. If you're looking for glitches in a system, for example, it's often very difficult to see glitches uh, in code or in, in data. But the same glitches, if you sonify it, you know, data errors, etc., will become extremely apparent very quickly. So there are practical techniques for using sonification of data to practical ends. I've known a few traders who actually told me that they listen to soft classical music that's almost relaxing to kind of distract from the, a lot of the red and the greens that are flashing on the screen because yeah. it's, it's, kind of, it's almost soothing and it, it almost prevents them from getting caught up in the movements in the markets and making maybe incorrect decisions or being hasty with their decision-making. Yeah, and, and that goes back to your earlier question. I mean, that is a deliberately chosen mechanism to try and purchase emotional comfort. If you know that your own proclivities are to allow yourself to get too anxious in certain states and you know that you are calmed down by a certain type of music, then these are habits that you can develop to actually improve your investment or your trading decision-making over time. We can look for those sort of self-nudging techniques in many different ways. And some, for some people, it's, you know, change the mood by use of soothing music. For most of us, the best way is to find a system of rules and habits that we can impose on ourselves that eliminates our tendency to the emotional knee-jerk action when it comes. For example, I have a, a rule for trading my own portfolio. I never allow myself to make any investment decision during the week, which might sound quite strange because surely I miss out on some good opportunities. But the fact is, I, it's not my job to watch the markets day to day. And yet I work in the bank, in a bank, so I'm surrounded by other people's screens. And there's Bloomberg and CNBC hanging, you know, TV screens hanging off the ceiling. 
if I allow myself to make trading decisions during the week, there is every possibility that I'll be responding to something I see on someone else's screen. I haven't the time or the context to think dispassionately about the right decision, so I end up making an emotionally charged decision. And that simple rule is one that may cost me a little bit from time to time in terms of missed opportunities, but it's a mechanism for me buying the emotional comfort that I need to, on average, make better decisions over time. I'd say in the past, uh, traders that trade on behalf of banks like Barclays might have been seen as the epicenter of the business. But it seems that your whole area on behavioral finance is actually the core. You're identifying trading behavior through your, say, your open outcry opera, and that could mimic and replicate the actual traders for companies. And also you're understanding the psychology and behavioral aspects of your clients. So you're almost the link that relates both your client and other co-workers or the trading floor. Or do you also carry out kind of testing on the traders themselves, psychometric testing, or kind of relate some of the decisions that are based on the traders and whether they suit the client? Yes, to a degree. We definitely over the last, um, well, over the last eight years, but very much more heavily focused in, in, in more recent times are turning the lens on ourselves. So we use our financial personality assessment internally, yes, to look at our portfolio managers. We look at our investment committees. Our own private bankers and advisors will, will often use it on themselves. And this is important as a way of us being less biased in our decision-making and the advice that we give and in designing good investment processes ourselves. So we definitely are aware that just because you work in a bank it certainly doesn't mean that you are not a human, you are not exposed to, to psychological biases. And the design of your own decision-making processes is as crucial if, and arguably even more crucial. So we have very much been turning that lens on ourselves in addition to using it to understand our clients and help our clients better. There's one important thing I think just to draw out here is – in practical terms, there are really two applications, two broad ways of applying behavioral finance, and we sit very strongly on one side of that fence. So there are a number of people who are trying to apply behavioral finance to predict markets better. And it's the sort of hypothesis that because markets are comprised of millions of less than fully rational people, if we understand how those people act, we will be able to uh, outpredict the markets and achieve more alpha, etc. This is all interesting. But I think the jury's very much out on whether that is possible and the extent to which it's possible. And we focus our attention very much on the other side of the coin, which is our job is to help people make better decisions. And people might be our clients. It might be our portfolio managers. It might be our investment committees. It might be retail people trying to understand how to save better. It might be high net worth people trying to understand how to invest better. But the focus is all on improving decision-making processes and decision-making outcomes rather than trying to take advantage of the, um, the, if you like, the irrationality of others in the market. Um, and in this sense, we're very much thinking of behavioral finance as a force for good, as a tool to assist people to make better decisions. And that's where I think most of the power of these techniques lies. You mentioned Versi and Kahneman. Do you have any other influencers in the field of economics or finance? Yeah, absolutely, and, and philosophy for that matter. So um, John Elster, a philosopher who's written extensively on uh, behavioral issues, on, on, on 
self-control and time discounting and various things is a strong influencer. My route into behavioral finance was very much through decision theory. So I was very influenced by a lot of the deep theorists of decision-making, including Amos Tversky, who was Kahneman's longtime collaborator, but another other, number of others there, like, like Duncan Luce. I mean, this is, gets very sort of abstract mathematical, but is, I think, a very crucial underpinning to understand the deep theory of, of what this means and how it is different from expected utility theory that underpins economics. Amartya Sen, um, you know, many of the people that bridge the, the gap between finance and philosophy are the ones that I have paid a lot of attention to in the past. So you've studied philosophy, you're deeply involved in this through your behavioral economics work. I'd love to know if you have an affirmation or a personal philosophy that you actually follow in your personal life or in your work life that you'd like to share with us. Well, not in the sense of uh, Western analytical philosophy. I think we're talking more about um, folk philosophy here or pop philosophy. But, you know, one thing, to me, there is an enormous value to curiosity. And I think being a lot of what I do and encourage people to do is to be deliberately multidisciplinary, to look for links between fields, to be continually curious, to be trying to gradually extend your circle of competence, the things that the mental toolbox of models that you have. And I don't think we do this by tying ourselves very deeply to a single strand of thinking like, you know, neoclassical economics or analytical philosophy or cognitive psychology. The excitement for me is in where all these come together. So my personal philosophy, I suppose, is just to make sure I keep learning, to make sure I stay curious and often to say yes to things, which sometimes I do to my detriment because, you know, time is short. But I find that the more you say yes to, the more you're spurred on to deliver things. And I try to always say yes to things that are slightly outside of my comfort zone because that's what pushes you to learn. And if you're only ever doing things that are within your existing comfort zone, it's very difficult to grow, I think, as an academic or a thinker or a practitioner. And the other aspect of multidisciplinary is, is to combine those. I don't want to be find myself to be only in the academic world or only in the practical world. I, I find the combination of these extremely exciting and energizing. I love that. I can totally relate to it. And you articulated it better than I would have done, but it's something that I would follow too. Do you have any internet resources or a recommended book that you'd like to share with our listeners? Internet sources, for me, the... The blog I find most compelling to follow is Farnham Street, Shane Parrish's blog. I think he puts it, utilizing the best of what other people have learned. And he is quite wide-ranging through social sciences, philosophy, economics. He's a big fan of Charlie Munger's thinking and Warren Buffett's thinking, so it goes into investment theory. That blog is very well worth following and reading, absolutely. Books to read. I, I mentioned John Elster as, as an influencer, and uh, I've recently been reading a book of his called Explaining Social Behavior. He's an interesting cross between a, a philosopher and economist and a, almost a literary critic. He, he brings in a lot of references from literature around the world. And this book is really trying to view the question of how do we explain what motivates people's behavior and draws on just absolutely so many strands of thinking that it is a, a very, very compelling read and a very, uh, very deep and thoughtful way of going through a wide range of fields. So I, I recommend that highly. 
Can I personally put in a recommendation as well for your book, Behavioral Investment Management, an Efficient Alternative to Modern Portfolio of Theory? Uh, I'd love to be able to talk about it. It covers a lot of the content that we discussed already in this podcast episode. It does. I mean, just the one sentence is it's, it's an attempt to bring behavioral thinking into the quantitative framework of modern portfolio theory. So essentially, we ask the question, what is the theory that Markowitz would have come up with if he had access to today's behavioral knowledge and also to computers? I mean, mean variance portfolio theory, given that at the time, this was in the early 1950s, pre-computers, is incredibly sophisticated, but it makes a number of simplifying assumptions that are behaviorally implausible. So we rework the normative theory of modern portfolio theory with a more plausible behavioral underpinning in that book. And so it's an attempt to draw together disparate fields in a quantitative framework. I've criticized Markowitz's modern portfolio theory, but really I shouldn't because something like that, as you mentioned, he didn't have access to a lot of the data and he could have done something differently if he knew more of the insights that we all are aware of today. And so we kind of stand on the shoulders of giants like Markowitz uh, to be able to develop a lot of these theories that suit today's yeah. economy, today's data that we have. And, you know, the process will go on and it'll improve further research and theoretical models in the future, too. Yeah, as a work of original insight, it's phenomenal. Mm. Of course, when you start applying that to the real world over time, you find the shortcomings of the assumptions and you find ways of improving it. But really to be the first person to take such a huge step is, you know, really shouldn't, we shouldn't be taking that away from him at all. It's plausible. Greg, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners where they could find you. Well, probably the, the easiest way for our material is on our behavioral finance microsite. It's www.investmentphilosophy.com. And there's quite a lot of our written material in there. And also, I engage quite a lot with Twitter, which is a good way of finding me. So Twitter handle is Greg B. Davies. You can find all the links to Greg on economicrockstar.com forward slash Greg Davies. Greg, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rockstar. Thanks, friend. Have a lovely day. You too. Have a great day. Yeah.